If you'd like to follow from the scriptures, turn to Micah chapter 6. The protests of this past week challenge us to address racial injustice. The accompanying riots, destruction of property, attacks on police, certain responses from the police, along with the deepening polarization of our nation call us to ask the question, what's wrong with America? This is not a new question. It's been asked throughout the ages in different forms. Uh, One story says that in 1908, the London Times wrote an article asking prominent authors what's wrong with the world. One author wrote back, Dear sirs, regarding your question, what's wrong with the world, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This morning, instead of us pointing fingers at one another to see what's wrong with each other, let's first look what's wrong inside us. Let's start by answering the question, what's wrong with America, by saying... I am. Our Lord, open our hearts to what you might say to each one of us today. For true healing begins with the individuals. Change our hearts. Open our eyes to see ourselves as you see us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke sees Micah 6 as a trial of God's people as they stand before God. It opens with, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. For the indictment of the Lord is against his people, and he will contend with Israel. As God's people Let us allow God to put us on trial. Now, God's trial in Micah 6 is very curious. It begins not by citing the sins and the wrongs of the people. It begins by God sharing about his love and how he delivered the Israelites from Egypt and how he righteously watched over them and directed them while they were in the wilderness. And then in light of that expression of love and that reminder, the people feel guilty. And they respond with saying, well, what shall I come before the Lord with? And how can I bow myself before the Lord on high? And it's, it's a reminder that as we stand before God's judgment, Let's start with the realization of how much he loves us. That we stand before a God who is just, not there to to find out everything that's wrong and hold it against us, but he's a just and loving God. And let that love open our hearts to what he wants to say to us, to allow us to drop our defenses and hear his voice today. 
And so the defendants do immediately respond to God with this sense of guilt and wondering, what, what shall we do, as verses 6 and 7 says? What, shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I, I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give up my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so we too, as, as we begin to see our own guilt, we, we wonder what, what can we do to make up for our guilt? What can we do for, to, to make recompense for our sin? And the answer is we, we can't. If we offered all, all the animals in the world or offered our, our firstborn, we can't make up for our sin. And we need to know what Abraham learned or Abraham said as he walked up the mountain with his son and Isaac said, Father, where is the lamb for sacrifice? And he responded, God will provide. And he did by a ram in the thicket. And we need to realize we, we can't make up for our sin, but God has provided in Jesus Christ. And so when we realize that, we move forward with the next question. It's uh, answering the question, oh man, what, what is good and what does God require of you? And then God tells us what he wants. So this is a reminder that what he's about to say is not how we get forgiven, what we must do uh, to be forgiven. It's what we do after we're forgiven. The eighth article of our denomination's statement of faith reads this. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. But notice how all of this begins. It begins by us realizing the justifying grace that we have in the, through the cross of Jesus Christ. That then begins to transform us. See, God doesn't forgive us so he can populate heaven. He forgives us to be, so we can begin to be transformed into what he created us to be, those who are in the image of God. And so when we understand this, we now say, what is God asking of us? And verse 8 tells us, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Let's take each of those phrases and hear God's call on our lives this morning. To do justice. You know, the voices I'm hearing around America seem to be united around a call for justice. Uh, they're being called in the protest. There's, politicians are saying, uh, we need justice, we need justice. 
Everybody agrees that the death of George Floyd was horrific and unjust. That everyone deserves justice. Our hearts cry out for justice because they are hardwired for justice. Justice is in our DNA because God is just and we are made in God's image. So we need to call out for justice. Liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, independents, blacks, whites, browns, everyone should cry out for justice for the Lord himself screams it out. Where we are in divide is how that is working out. Is there real justice? How can we move toward justice? And I think Martin Luther King, who led the way in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, has advice we need to hear today. He wrote, In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. The first step is to determine whether or not there are injustices. What those injustices are. Then negotiate how these can be addressed. So, as I hear those words, I examine myself. And I say, have I really sought out the facts? Do I really understand what is going on? Or have I just come up with my own assessment, listening to those voices whose opinions I will end up parroting? We don't seem to be going after the facts. We seem to be locked into our positions. Uh, Tony Reagan's article is very insightful. It's called, Welcome to Post-Truth America. Subtitled, With the rise of social media and partisan news outlets, everyone now has their own opinions and their own facts. Can we break free of the echo chambers? Nettie writes this in the article. Ultimately, the fault is not in our media or technology, but in ourselves. Somewhere in the vast wilds of the internet, the facts we need and want are out there, but we must first want to find them. Are we open to seeing that we can be wrong, that we do not see everything, we do not know everything? And it's hard to find these facts. So in light of our search for them, I propose these words from the president of Boston College to his faculty and students. It's essential that all of us review our lives to ensure that we act in accord with gospel mandate to love God and neighbor. Hatred and racism have no place anywhere. We are called to challenge such behavior when manifested, not only in our community, but also in our nation and world. Finally, it's essential that we remain people animated by faith, 
hope and love, not let frustration, anger, and violence prevail. That's a call on our lives. But to address the injustice, we need to understand others, not just our own viewpoint. Where do we begin? What are our first steps? I think the first one is talking to people who are different than us, to know their story. And I challenge each of us this week to find somebody, a black person, we are very white in our congregation, to understand their story and what they are going through. I've heard an African-American family will not drive into one of our surrounding towns because they have been consistently stopped because they're black. I've heard that an African-American family who was in Westgate Church stopped coming because of insensitive remarks by some of us at Westgate. I heard a senator talk about how one of his colleagues, another black senator, had been stopped six times by the police in Washington, D.C., but he, a white senator, had never been stopped. Shaquille O'Neal shared how he teaches his sons if you are stopped by police, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Do not reach into your glove compartment. I don't have to worry about that. And I never realized black men had to worry, had to, had to worry about that. Let's talk. Hard conversations. But let's see what people are going through and feeling so we might know facts. Let's do self-examination, or as Martin Luther King said, self-purification. We are to do justice, and we are to love kindness. I see a lot of calls for justice, rightly so. A lot less acts of kindness, and they, even those are lost among the the destruction, the attacks on one another. There's a lot of hurt and pain that's been caused, not just by the rioters, but by pundits and politicians and people like me who are more interested in criticizing our opponents than loving them. See, Christians are called to radical love. Jesus implores us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not where I start. And then I see the model of the Apostle Paul. His opponent sought his life. They persecuted him, they stoned him, they put him in prison. 
and his response to, to opponents and those who had the same faith of his opponents is this from Romans chapter 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm, I'm not lying. My conscience wears, bears witness with my Holy Spirit. We see he's about to say something we're not going to believe. It's true. He's saying it is true. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Is, is that our attitude? That our love is so great, even for our opponents, we would trade our salvation? It's not mine. I don't love kindness the way he did. That's the heart of kindness. But we see more in chapter 10, where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, Paul looks at his opponents, those who, who differ from him, and he doesn't vilify them for their differences. He attributes the best possible motives. They have a zeal for God. It's just not according to knowledge. We have this disagreement over the facts which uh, we will stand strong and try to convince you. But I know you sincerely want God. Is that what I do? No. And that's, is that what I'm hearing around our country? No. Opponents are attributing the worst possible motives to each other. Seldom have I heard one say, I disagree fervently, but I know my opponent wants the best for this country. That's loving kindness. Understanding, listening to each other, thinking the best of each other, not the worst of each other. May I and we be imitators of Paul, who's an imitator of Jesus. What does the Lord require to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Tuesday morning, I woke up, and I had this impression that I needed to put aside the sermon I had been preparing because of what was happening in the country and speak to what's been happening. Over the next half hour, I started to write out a sermon that pretty much attacked everybody. My goal was to show everybody their sin and say, don't you realize you need a Savior? And it's true, we all have sin. We all need a Savior. But what arrogance to begin by looking at everyone else instead of myself. It's the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. The core quality of Christ is humility. Philippians chapter 2, and he calls us to have the same humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Lord saw all the rebellion, all of the rejection of God, all of the sin in the world, and his response is, I will become like them so I can carry their sin. That's humility. Are we humble? Drew Brees, the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, has done more for the city of New Orleans than any athlete in history. He cared for the city. He walked with the city. He helped with the city after Hurricane Katrina which impacted the black community more than anything, anyone. He just donated $5 million to COVID relief for New Orleans, where blacks have been disproportionately affected. Wednesday, he was asked the question about kneeling, football players kneeling before, uh, during the national anthem. He responded, I will never agree with anyone disrespecting the flag of the United States of our country. And he went on to explain that for him it represented the sacrifices of his grandparents who fought in World War II, of those who died, of those who fought for civil rights, and that it shouldn't be dishonored. Some of his teammates immediately attacked him for that statement. Other athletes piled on, and he was vilified publicly by many. If I were Drew Brees, my response would have been, you misinterpreted me completely, and that's on you. You didn't understand what I was saying. And have you seen what I've done for the city, for for the black community? You know, how dare you address me that way? Instead, his response was to go to those teammates to hear their story. And then he said this, I would like to apologize to my friends, teammates, the city of New Orleans, the black community, NFL community, and anyone I've hurt with my comments yesterday. In speaking with some of you, it breaks my heart to know the pain I have caused an attempt to talk about respect, unity, and solidarity centered around the American flag and the national anthem. I made comments that were insensitive and completely missed the mark on the issues we are now facing in our country. They lacked awareness and any type of compassion or empathy. Instead, those words have become divisive and hurtful and have misled people into believing that somehow I'm an enemy. This is not further than the truth. It's, it's not an accurate reflection of my heart or my character. And I'm sick about the way my comments were perceived yesterday, but I take full responsibility and accountability. I recognize that I should do less talking and more listening. And when the black community is talking about their pain, we all need to listen. For that, I am very sorry, and I ask your forgiveness. That's humility. Humility. 
That's what we all need to do. What does the Lord require? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. See, it's not just about humility. It's about a humble walking with God himself. The foundation of our lives, the foundation of any movement should be God. It should be his word. And that was the case in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Listen to these words from Martin Luther King that he wrote in his letter from the Birmingham jail. Some parts of it. We've waited more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, the law of God. Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia, the true church, is the hope of the world. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. We need to ground all we do by walking humbly with our God. This does not mean we don't speak out. Martin Luther King spoke out. He spoke out firmly and strongly and lovingly and graciously and humbly. We should follow that pattern. As I look at what God desires to do justice, I failed. To love kindness, I've failed. To walk humbly, I failed. And often failed to walk with the Lord. And I say, Lord, what can I do to make up for it? I join uh, the defendants in Micah 6 and 7 with what shall I come before you, Lord? Uh, can I bow myself? Uh, shall I come before you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, are you pleased with the thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Lord, I know I can't make up for it. I can't give my firstborn. It's not enough. But God so loves us, he gave his firstborn so that we could be forgiven and we could start anew. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should never die but have eternal life. He came into the world not to judge the world, but to save it. That's my hope for my transformation, to begin with that truth and let that truth melt my heart and change my life. The Bible says we love because God first loved us. He who is forgiven much loves much, Forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. 
The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one's died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised again. If we want transformation in our lives, when we find our truth and our center in the gospel, the love of God, he'll change heart after heart after heart. And when people are changed, our nation begins to be changed. If we wrote a letter to heaven and asked, what's the solution to America's problems? We'd get this response. Dear nation, regarding your question, what is the solution for America's problems? I am. Yours truly, Jesus Christ. Lord, lead us to the foot of the cross. Hear our confessions, hear our desires for justice. 